When you think of a farmer, what comes to mind? Or better yet, what comes to mind when you picture a farming family, say, in Northern Ireland? Do you have it in your mind? Good, now that you got that image, you're probably thinking, what, red barns, green tractors, maybe some bucolic scene with sheep, right? Well, today's farmer couldn't be further away from that image. I'm AJ Barsay, and you've tuned into the Analog Explorer podcast. Read about my analog manifesto, my passion for photography, and my love of travel and watches in print or online at analogexplorer.com. Today's guest is what you would call an underwater farmer. He doesn't tend a flock or a crop, or, well, not a crop that you would think on terrestrial land. He's a regular Captain Nemo tending a crop of kelp off the coast of Northern Ireland in frigid waters, suiting up for work not in bibbed overalls, but in a wetsuit, seven mil to be exact, with a dive knife and, of course, a good dive watch. His name is Graham Gannon, owner and proprietor of the Peninsula Kelp Company. He's a family man, a diver, a underwater farmer of sustainable ocean nutrition, and friend of ours in the watch fam hello from hello from ireland <laughs> i should say northern ireland <laughs> where in northern yeah. ireland are you i'm based on the arts peninsula newton arts peninsula which would just be sort of east of belfast possibly about say 10 miles east of belfast it's a small spit of land that just sort of as you're coming around into the irish sea uh we we are based there it's nice it's it's slightly remote you know countryside and I'm, I'm on then so I've got the Irish Sea on, on one way and then on the other side I've got Strangford Lock which is a hidden gem in the uh, in the in Europe basically you know so yeah originally from Dublin my background basically I'm a bit of a mixed bag done all sorts of different things I was always a diver I've always since 1975 you know since I was five years of age always in the water spear fishing diving what have you so Diving was a big thing in my life. I grew up on the, more or less on the beach in Dublin. Left home in 88, went to America. I, I had a, I have a lot of tradition in their family um, that left Ireland and went off to America to join the forces and fought in the Pacific campaign uh, on the war demolition team um, and then Vietnam. And, you know, fast forward there, finished school in 88, packed my rucksack, wanted to join the U.S. Navy. Got a, a flight, went to Boston, landed in Boston on a Wednesday, Thursday morning, Dorchester Avenue. I was banging on the door to recruiter and the recruiter said, son, have you got a green card? I went, no. Nope. And he said, look, I'll tell you what. He says, we'll see, can we get the Navy to sponsor you? So I spent two years in America doing every job from bing, cleaning bingo halls to hanging sheetrock to McDonald's to working in a law firm while I was trying to get into the U.S. Navy. And that, unfortunately, didn't happen. It, they, they, the Navy did everything to sponsor me, but immigration just wasn't letting it happen. And my mother said to me, son, there's an advertising newspaper. Do you fancy joining the Merchant Navy? And so, yeah, I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. And my other friend, he went off and joined the French Foreign Legion. I said, look, you know what, mom? My heart is at sea. I'm going to join the Merchant Navy. So she sent me away. I left America heartbroken absolutely heartbroken um i absolutely loved my time there uh landed back in ireland and 
joined the merchant navy and became a cadet went to sea and trained as a you know a deck officer navigation officer but so i went off to sea um spent about seven eight years there and then decided you know what i just need something give me a little bit of excitement came ashore was just always chasing adventure joined the, the british army and joined an irish regiment um, I joined the Royal Irish Rangers and I spent nearly eight years there. Another opportunity landed on my plate. So I retrained then as a commercial diver, got my hard hat ticket and went out into Sibby Street. And I, I got a job straight away working in the, in the commercial diving industry, doing ship repair, ship uh, underwater construction, all civil engineering projects, you know, ar- around the country. Doing Every day is dynamic. One day you're surveying, the next day you're taking a rope off a prop, an opportunity came up where the company that I was based with got the opportunity to take on the police on the water search team role. As it was unheard of for this, to, this tender to go out to a, you know, to, to a civilian company. And I was in the right place at the right time, plenty of experience in, in, in different roles that would be applicable to that. So they offered me the role for underwater search team, uh, as well as my commercial diving. So I I spent 12 years on the underwater search team. So you would think if you're an adventuresome kind of person at this point, with a CV like that, and the passion for staying beneath the waves as opposed to above it, you would think that Graham would be absolutely happy. What more could you ask for? Or better yet, how would anyone have, say, time to do anything else? Well, remember, in all of that long list of things that he's accomplished, the business of farming hasn't been brought up yet. So you're probably thinking, much like I was, how does one go from a frogman to a farmer? Yeah, I've, I've kept busy. I, I, I'm not one for sitting on my hands. Uh, I'm not one for sitting on my hands. I mean, when we were growing up, like, you know, seaweed was always a big thing. You know, how my how the real seaweed thing came about with the peninsula kelp was... Um, I actually built an underwater trail on the seabed, right? I came up, it's something I was passionate about years ago. I wanted to help divers train properly, recreational divers. I saw a big, I saw a big gap in confidence things when divers came out and just to keep them, keep them, you know, current and competent, I built a trail on the seabed. I gathered a lot of rope. I gathered 800 meters of rope over a period of time. And then I made these pins. There was a diving club not too far from me in Bangor. And I said, I approached them, they were like, you're nuts. And I said, look, you're a diving club and the water's right there and you don't, you don't use it. And they were like, it's too shallow. And I said, it's perfect to train. So I built this, uh, me and this other guy designed this and we built this basically like a pyramid on a seabed and we extended it. And when we were extending it, we started finding things on the seabed. And then we started to look at the, the, the history and as we're looking at the history, we realized this place has been an anchorage from this, you know, this, the 15th century. And we started finding bits of timber, old bottles, and it became really interesting. So the, the, the trail extended just to make things interesting. So the diver didn't have to navigate, but he could go practice skills, lift things off the seabed, all stuff like that. It was amazing. But while I was doing that, I came up with an idea because I'm a firm believer in, 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 in helping charities. I said, let's do an underwater marathon and let's raise money. And they were, the guys were like, what do you mean? I said, let's swim 26 and a half miles around this trail as a team effort, right? So we got, I put it, 
I put it out on social media and I got a group of people to sign up. And then I approached local charities, the Lifeboats, Children's Cancer, Air Ambulance. And then we raised like, I think it was nearly $5,000 say. It was just short of that. But while I was there, I asked my wife to help me, you know, to raise more money. So she said, what could I do? I said, well, look, let's make soap, right? <laughs> and she Random. Said, yeah. Yeah. And she, she's real creative. And she went, right, OK, it's different than a cake sale. So we made soap. But she said to me, you know, when you're out, bring back some kelp, will you? So I brought back some kelp. We started to see how the kelp reacted to soap. And she went, this is amazing. I went, well, Andrea, I says, when I was growing up in Dublin, the kelp was either in your garden, you know, help, helping your potatoes, or it was in your stew, in your soup. My grandmother, my grandmother was a beachcomber, and she used to bring in bags of seaweed and bags of driftwood on a Monday. She'd always walk. Yeah, she grew up on the beach. As Graham admitted before, he doesn't like to sit on his hands. And it was through this act of charity that he kind of stumbled upon another title of his, entrepreneur. And with his creative wife, Andrea, and of course, very, very savvy daughters, this is where the impetus of Peninsula Kelp Company came to fruition. You might even say that those first bits of kelp that he brought back to Andrea to put into soap, that was really the seeds to the Peninsula Kelp Company. And from there, Andrea and him started experimenting more and more. So after the soap, Graham and Andrea started playing around with herbs and kelp. And of course, a little pinch of sea salt here and there. And they started creating these jars of seasoning. They then started making it and giving it away to friends and family and quickly became known that kelp and that seasoning and just dealing with kelp in general was kind of their thing. So much so, it kind of started a little bit of a demand for them. They were invited to have a table at the farmer's market. A doodle of a diver's helmet became their iconic logo for the Peninsula Kelp Company. They were literally growing as fast as kelp does. Until the day came, Graham had to ask himself, you know, what do I call myself? Is there even a job title that can go to a person who dives and makes things out of kelp? You know what? I didn't really... I didn't know what to call myself until one day I was at a meeting and there was a guy who was a journalist for a farmer's journal. And he said to me, he, he said to me, I'd really like to do an article on you on you and your wife. He says, because your underwater farming is amazing. I went, and he goes, you know, you could get a grant for that. And I was like, no. And he goes, well, you're a farmer. And I went, right. I didn't really know what job description to put down. And uh, so that's what it came about. He said, yeah, you're actually, you're an underwater farmer. And, you know, I, I just didn't know what sort of category or box we would fill into. But he wrote an article on us and he, you know, described us as underwater farmers. And that's sort of how the hashtag came about, you know, on my, on my badge, you know, it's sustainable ocean nutrition, you know, where there's, there's so many, I think there's about 13, 1400 species of seaweed. I mean, worldwide that is. I, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. You know, again, I'm, I'm just an underwater farmer. I'm not a marine biologist. Um, you know, I, I, I have a fair bit of knowledge, but I, I do claim I do not know everything. Um, and I always try to get that across to people that, you know, if I don't know what it is, I'll, I will go and try to find out for you. But as far as I know, there's about that many species, you know, and my ethos is to do it sustainably, um, not damage the environment. You know, we, we rotate our, our sort of cropping plan um, and it's just me Andrea wetsuits and knife fins mask and snorkel and a bag and a float and clicked onto my hip 
and off we go. And, you know, and then Leah, my eldest daughter, who's going off to Wales University next week to become a marine biologist. She's a camera woman. And then my 11 year old is the one who helps me do Lightroom and uh, social media. <laughs> it sounds like you're a farming family. I mean, most yeah. fa farms are run by family. Your, yeah. your daughters are diving with you, free diving with you. Now, yeah. Northern Ireland is akin to, to our, our Salish sea waters and such. So it's, it's, yeah. it's a bit brisk. I mean, are you guys, and you're not dry bagging it. You're in wet. No, suits, no, so. we, I don't, I don't dry bag. I actually use a suit, a seven mil uh, spear fishing suit from Cressy. So, um, and it's probably one of the better suits I've, I've ever used. As I said, I've been, um, I've been sort of in the water since 1975, say. And I've gone through a lot of wetsuits and uh, I, I don't think I'll return back to old neoprene anymore. I think it's open cell neoprene for me is the way to go. Um, as I said, I'm 12 months of the year in the water. You know, I've seen it two degrees here, then minus one. And it's more of the wind chill factor would cut you in half when you get north, when you get northerly winds here. Um, and as I said, seven mil and up to five mil, you know, gloves. Um, I just wear woolly socks you know, big hiking socks inside the booties in the winter, drink lots of coffee, lots of water before you go in and, and, and swim fast and pee more, so to speak. So, you know, I could be in the water depending on what I need that particular day, you know, what I need to restock. I could be in the water anything up to, let's say, four hours, you know, it de depending what I need. Um, minimum an hour because I got to swim out to a reef section which is about 400 meters when it starts and then the rocks, you know, level off, depending on the sort of the time tides, I could be anything from one meter, two meters to six meters, say on a spring water. So I have to work harder at the six meter point, but the kelp, as the winter goes on, the kelp sort of dies off a little bit on the upper level. And then it's, it's beautiful kelp along the bottom of the ledge. Um, and the, dull, the dullest sort of, I'm using this term correctly, has like a, a symbiotic relationship with the kelp. It grows underneath the kelp. So I have to get down. And if you notice in some of my little videos, I'm actually pushing through the kelp, swimming, and I'm actually looking for dullest or else looking for lobsters or from a dinner kind of thing, you know. But yeah, no, no, no it's good. It's good. It's, it's healthy and it's, it's honest work. I always feel very, very revived after it, you know, especially when it's cold. <laughs> it's healthy and it's honest work. Now that, that sounds like a farmer to me. And just like any farmer, passionate about the ecology of the farm, the ground to the critters. Just like any farmer, a farmer will tell you everything from the weather, to the soil, to the pH, to the critters that are good and bad. But there's still one part missing, and that is most farmers, when you're on terrestrial land, you have a plot that you till and then you sow, and then of course you harvest and you sell. Well, how does one do that if it's beneath the waves? It's kind of a unique situation. Not only does Graham and his family have the skills and the lungs to do this on the regular 12 months out of the year, but how does one become a farmer of underwater land? Well, of course, like any businessman or, or entrepreneur, you're going to read about the laws and agencies that you have to go to, start knocking on doors, filling out paperwork. So as he is explaining this adventurous, endeavorsome plan, this, there's an essence of almost true adventure. This hasn't been done. So, of course, 
When he presents this, the government agencies and departments... They said, you're not go away. Oh, I guess I didn't see that coming. And I went, I kept knocking on the doors and approached the Department of Environment, uh, the Department of Fisheries, and, you know, and I spent a year sort of doing surveys over seabed to find, you know, the more research we did, the more we became involved, um, the more we loved what we were doing. Um, I know we only had two sea things, you know, but I kept saying, no, there's something here, Andrew, we need to get this out. So Andrew and I would just stick our wetsuits on on a Sunday, take a, you know, a slate, uh, a lead line and, you know, take soundings, watch the tides, read the tides, the kelp compositions and the different types of seaweeds that were in the area. But also I started to research the water quality, research the circulation of tides in the area. And from there, we found an area. And then upon more research, I found out that this area was next to Queen's University, which is quite a good university here. They do a lot of research. So I drove down to Port of Ferry, knocked on the door, and this girl came out and I said, look, I need to speak to someone here. And they were like, who are you? And they were like, okay, we'll talk to you. So they talked to me. And when I went in, all of a sudden, I was surrounded by these people, these so passionate people. And they realized how passionate I was about it. And they said, well, we're happy to help you. So we haven't, you know, in the meantime, we surveyed this area. We'd approached the Crown Estate and we came up with a leasing project. So they enabled us to lease this section of seabed from, the, from them. Predominantly, the, the Queen owns the, the seabed for the, you know, until the 12 mile limit. So they came up with a, a price and we proposed a way we could do this. And so they leased me a section of seabed, just like a farmer's field. So that was only one hoop I had to jump through. I had to jump through another two hoops. Then I had to approach the Department of Environment and I had to come up with a plan how, how I could do this with sustainable and how I wouldn't damage what I'm going to, what I'm, you know, the area that I'm going to be in. So I sat down over a period of weeks and I, I researched and researched how a farmer would do it. And I came up with a rotational cropping plan. And Andrew and I sat down and did survey after survey, of, you know, the different. So we actually came up with six different locations in our area where we could harvest the whole full 12 months of the year and everything could be, everything could be sustainable. So basically, we stipulated we wouldn't use scuba. We would do everything by the power of the hand and the power of our lungs. We would hold our breath, free dive, and they were happy with that. They were like, right, we're happy with that. And eventually, so that took about a year, and eventually they signed off on the plan. Like they just thought we were nuts. They were like, you're going you're gonna to wear a wetsuit 12 months of the year. And I was like, yeah, look, I take a lot of cold showers. It's okay. I'm, I'm good with the cold, you know. And the way I say it, the way I say is swim faster and pee more. It's, just, it's instant suit warmer. So, so they, they went for that in the end. And then the other, the fisheries and stuff, I had to sort of negotiate that I wouldn't affect the local fishing, you know, community with the, lobs, the lobsters and stuff like that. And that's how it started. In the meantime, then I did an interview our local radio and then people heard about me and then like, the hotels and pubs started to like, contact us and say I, I want to get some kelp off you for can you come see me so we started to deliver kelp to restaurants 
um, it's, you know, for vegan elements and also for garnishes. And for cocktails, I was delivering to a cocktail bar. And just like that, the fame and notoriety of this family and the Peninsula Kelp Company took off. It's about this time that I got introduced to Graham and the Peninsula Kelp Company because yours truly was ordering and importing some of that kelp and dulles from Northern Ireland to here in Bellingham, Washington. Using it in our foods and with my five-year-old son's allergies, I was able to guarantee that there wasn't any chance of cross-contamination to his allergies. Yes, you heard right, a five-year-old boy loving to eat kelp and dulles. Now granted, I, I have it a little bit easy because he's all in when it comes to the ocean. He loves his octonauts, Jacques Cousteau and the Vegemals. So when I told him how this was harvested, he was ready, willing, and able to eat it. But more on that on my blog, ajbarsay.com. But getting back to the Peninsula Kelp Company, as the Gannon family developed the Peninsula Kelp Company, of course, it grew. And with growth came opportunity. And as we know, Graham doesn't like to sit on his hands. But this is 2019. And, and, that was, and then an opportunity came along then later on, um, 2019, where we were offered a little container in a little, a little, a little down the street in, the in our local town. And it was called the Precinct. And it was eight feet by 30 feet container, or 20, 20 something like that. And the guy said, look, I, I'll lease you this container. You can have as a shop. So my wife was just like, always wanted to have her own little shop. So uh, she said to me, what way can we do this? Because it's so small. And I said, look, have you ever seen inside a yacht? I said, a yacht is small. I says, I will, I will make this like the inside of a boat. And she went, uh, I have no idea how you're going to do it. I said, just leave me alone. I says, I'll get my tools out. So I spent about six weeks every night after work going there, like you finish work, it's about the time I got home, got my chills, got my dinner, went there, finished at one o'clock, went home, was up at seven, went to work, did that. And then they were putting pressure on us to open the shop because there was a lot of people in town were like, what are you doing? What do you make? What is it? And we were like, seaweed. And they're like, seaweed? You're gonna, you're gonna open a shop and sell seaweed. So then people started to get really interested in this. You know, politicians were like, when he opened the seaweed shop. So then a competition came up where the town was up for an award. Our town is Newton Arts. And um, it has to be open for the 4th of September because there's an award. So I worked, I worked like a smurf and I got it done. I got it done and I opened, we, I got it finished by the 3rd of September and we opened the doors and it was just great. It was, it was fantastic, you know. And in the meantime, we'd made a lot more products from our seaweed. We, you know, we started to develop a butter, our seaweed butter, which is, is absolutely epic. Um, and oils, infused oils, and obviously the crackers. And then we were making smoothies in the shops using the seaweed, you know. So again, and then we actually put a boat next to the shop where we were growing herbs using seaweed as a fertilizer. And it, it, it literally, we used just, you know, good soil and mixed the seaweed in with the soil. So the soil, you know, the, the soil became packed with nitrates and it was feeding, it was feeding the plants and the herbs. So you literally, people could come in off the street and order a specific type of smoothie and they would ask for a herb. Andrew would go out and literally cut the herb on front of them and make the smoothie. So it was things like that involved in the shop. Um, and it just went from there, you know, developing different things. 
it went from there <laughs> um, and everything was going wonderful. You know, we were supplying restaurants. I was kept really busy. I was working as a commercial diver. I was on the road and at the weekends I was harvesting. Uh, and then Andre was baking in the morning and then she would bake in the shop because we had cookers and we had a little cooker in the shop. And then like I do a coffee range. So because I spent, I spent a lot of time on the road and I got tired of buying hot, dirty, expensive water. So I do my own coffee and then I had coffee in the shop and stuff like that. And uh, that ran on till March 22nd of 2020. And then boom, COVID came. So I was I was getting out of my car on a Saturday morning, big tray of butter going across to open up. And the guy comes over and he goes to me, hey, did you not hear the news? And I went, no, I haven't heard any news. And he says, as of today, you're closed. And I went, what do you mean? He goes, he says, do you sell milk? Do you sell bread? And I went, no. He goes, forced closures, you're non-essential. Um, but he says, you're okay, you're going to get help. And I was like, right, okay, well, that's, 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 that's good. But little unknown to us that he was taking our rent, but he wasn't paying our rates. And he didn't have planning permission for our even our little site. So for 10 weeks on after that, uh, yeah, he was dangling a carrot with us. And when we approached, you know, our government organization to help us with the funding, they said to us, we don't even know who you are. And, uh, and we lost our shop. Yeah, that was, that was tough because we were very, very emotionally attached to our shop. Uh, we put a lot of money into it, uh, a, lot of, a lot of effort, uh, a lot of man hours spent in that, in that small period of time where we had the shop. But remember, Graham is still a professional diver during the work week. So the shop might be closed, but at least he's still diving, right? Well, earlier that week when he was at the office, another bombshell of bad news was dropped on him and his fellow divers. This was supposed to be just a normal day. Still processing what had just happened, he knocked off for the day. He hopped up in his truck and... Drove up the road and I said to the wife, I said, look, just lost that job there. She says, God, you've another year left. And I went, yeah, well, COVID's come and they've lost the contract. So they're moving management into our position. So she says, look, don't worry about it. We'll get through this. You know, we, uh, we're a firm believer in, you know, cheerfulness in the face of adversity. Holding on to the belief of cheerfulness in the face of adversity. You know, I admire the Gannon family for this. I mean, put yourselves in their shoes. You've just lost your job and your side hustle. And now what during a pandemic? I think all of us can empathize with where they're at right now. This would be a tipping point for anyone, or it could be a turning point. You know, and uh, um, I lost my job on the Wednesday, and then I lost, we lost our shop on the Saturday. But, you know, it was 10 weeks that we, we were in limbo and like Andrea was very, very upset. You know, she was crying her eyes at one night. And we were sitting here, and I said, "Look, look." I says, "Just, just look. Let's just, just get a beer here, you know, and let's just, just, just chill, chill out." You know, I always wanted to be a full-time kelp diver, underwater farmer. You know, the more I was involved, the more I, I said, you know, I really, really am passionate about this. That I would like to sort of, you know, 
step away from what I was doing with the search team um, and then just focus on the kelp and focus on us, you know, and building our little business because, you know, if you enjoy food and, you know, as we say, you have a relationship with your food, so you should know where it's, you know, where it's coming from. And um, I think that was, it was key to us in our social media was to tell people the story of our food, of, you know, where, what we do. Um, it was, it's key for me that my sea, seaweed comes from the seabed. I don't pick it off the rocks. I hand dive for my seaweed. Like I know my kelp bed. I know where my dullus is. I know where my sea lettuce is. You know, I, I have about a 400 meter swim out to where my sort of start area is. And then I go from there, you know, but, but getting back to the shop. So we're sitting here, you know, and I said, look, Andre, there's no one coming to help us here. It's up to us now. I says, it's up to us. I says, and if we're failing here, it's because we're failing to be resourceful here. We actually have something, you know, here and it, it's amazing. You know, we just need to be, forget about being competitive, but we'll be more creative. So she went outside and she came in with this, this chopping board full of cheese, crackers. And I went, did you just make that up there? And I went, she said, yeah. I said, you know what, that's a work of art. And she started laughing. I said, you know what, we should really put that in a box and, and, and get it out there. And, and she goes, what do you mean? I says, well, when I was a young sailor, when the captain invited you to sit at his table, you knew you were going to eat well. And I said to her, I'm going to call that the captain's table. And that's how the development of the captain's table cheese board came about for us. And that saved us. That, that saved us because we were, you know, at our wits end. We'd lost our shop, I'd lost my job. And all I wanted to do was be, you know, full-time kelp farmer. And combining local artisan cheeses and combining air products, we developed this little grazing box and that just saved us, you know, that fed, that fed my family, um, you know, because uh, I have two girls and, and that, 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 that kept us going, you know. So from there, people started to notice it. And then I got invited to do like a TV show, interviews, and, and it just, you know, went from strength to strength, you know, and it's where I wanted to be. <laughs> I just, you know, you know, it's where, where both of us wanted to be, you know, doing this type of work. Just like a tide, things ebb and flow. And also sometimes you get tussled by waves crashing down upon you. And in this case, Graham, this is going with the tide. And this is kind of one of those things where you kind of have to take one big breath and just dive in. And on that note, that's where we're going to wrap up this first half of this Analog Explorer. But don't worry, there is a second half. But if this first part has got you kelp curious, be sure you support Graham and his family in the Peninsula Kelp Company at PeninsulaKelpCo.com. Longtime supporters of me and the Analog Explorer, a big shout out to all of my Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash You might have noticed that this episode was definitely cut and mixed a lot differently than I normally produce. And it's kind of just part of something different that I wanted to try. But I still wanted it to fit within our time slots on KMRE 102.3 FM here in Bellingham, Washington. 
or fit within the feed, of course, at the Bellingham Podcast. But if you'd like to listen to the entire two-part episode, go on over to the Analog Explorer in your favorite podcast app of choice and subscribe. You'll get both halves there. And yes, my friends in the watch fam, Graham and I do talk about his watches. It's in the second half. I'm AJ Barce, your Analog Explorer. Thank you again for subscribing, rating, reviewing, wherever you like to get this podcast. And just supporting me, whether that's on Instagram at AJ Barce or online at analogexplore.com. <laughs>